what are the limits to religious belonging? I look at the connected histories of Jews, Muslims, Judaism, and Islam. To do so, I focus on the post-conversion lives of Jewish converts to Islam in the Middle East and in Europe. I look at the histories of Jewish men and women who, after converting, invented unique paths to God and also to communal and to national belonging in the Ottoman Empire, in modern Greece and Turkey, and in modern Germany. Welcome to Ottoman History Podcast. I am Zainab Azarbadegan. That was Mark Baer talking about the main thread that connects his three-decade-long study and research of Ottoman history. Mark is Professor of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. In this first episode of a two-part series, I will discuss with Mark how he came to study Ottoman history, the questions behind his scholarship, and his experience of doing research in Turkey. We will then discuss in detail his first two books, Honored by the Glory of Islam, Conversion and Conquest in Ottoman Europe, published in 2008, and the Donme, Jewish Converts, Muslim Revolutionaries and Secular Turks, published in 2010. For more information about all of his five books, please look at our website. But first, let's hear how he started to study the history of the Ottoman Empire. It was quite by accident. I had gone to graduate school to study Muslim-Jewish relations, and I thought, like everyone else, the obvious place to do so is Palestine, Israel. And I thought the modern period was the obvious way to go. I had already um, studied Hebrew as um, an undergraduate. It was, it was my minor. I also had begun to study Arabic as an undergraduate. So at, at my first graduate university, I began to continue with my Arabic, and I thought, okay, I'll study Palestine-Israel. But I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't enjoying it. I, I, I didn't find enough there to keep me there. And then I happened to meet some Turks. Simple as that. And, I, and these were not even academic people. These were professionals where I was. And they said, well, if you want to study Muslims and Jews and their relations, why don't you study the Ottoman Empire? It hadn't even dawned on me. And so I began to study Turkish informally. And then I began to study Turkish formally. And the next thing I knew, I was in Istanbul learning Turkish and I and carrying on with Ottoman and just took off from there. I never looked back and I, I've never written a word about Israel-Palestine. So when I started, when I was writing my first book, there was the view that relations between Ottomans and Jews, Jewish uh, subjects of the Ottoman dynasty, were always positive, were always good. Bernard Lewis wrote that life for Jews in the Ottoman Empire was, or the Ottoman Empire for Jews was a paradise. Halil Enalgic, in his entire oeuvre, only mentioned Jews in one or two articles. Um, in one of those, he expresses how emotional he became when he wrote about Jews, because it, it wasn't just history, but it was about friendship and, and, and emotion and, and close ties and so on. So uh, when I started to do research almost 30 years ago, 
these were sort of the emotions that actually accompanied you when you go into read we go to the libraries and the archives you're you're fed with these sort of emotions about the past that maybe they aren't even well articulated maybe they're in your subconscious and you go in there and i believed that relations between ottoman the ottoman ruling class and jews was a good one that's what i'd been taught in graduate school and then i started reading um, literary accounts in the 17th century literary accounts about a number of different things the construction of of the yeni jami the new mosque in eminono i read the vakhnama the endowment deed of that building i read uh, the chronicles about the construction of that building and i was seeing very different attitudes um very negative uh, attitudes towards jews that i that i hadn't encountered in the scholarly literature the scholarly literature wrote about a golden age and focused on the 16th century and i wondered what was happening in the 17th century that muslim intellectuals and religious figures would have a negative view of jews uh, jews historical jews actual jews not just in theological terms but actual negative um, stereotypes if you read someone like evlia chelebi and what he wrote about jews but also as i mentioned some of the other official documentation some of the chronicles then i was quite surprised to find and then i began to um, look at what had changed in the 17th century You have to think about when I started doing my research. So I began I, I began graduate school in 1992, and if you think about how conversion was written about at that time, many of many scholars had still been been arguing that people converted for socioeconomic reasons, uh, for lower taxes, to marry, what have you. Well, okay, that's fine, and the scholarship was based on socioeconomic data, archival sources. But people hadn't read the literary sources. They hadn't thought about the other side of the coin. Not why people converted, but why people wanted them to convert. Or why Muslims wanted to bring Jews or Christians to the fold. It's not, an, it's not obvious. It's not obvious at all. Because the Ottomans ruled over this, this huge empire. And the question is, how was conversion used in different eras, how was it promoted in different eras? What did it mean in different eras? It wasn't always the same thing. Next, Mark told me about doing archival research in Turkey in the 1990s and how the conditions of his research helped him reflect on what he was studying. So along with writing my, my dissertation, which ended up as, as part of my first book, which was on conversion, I also, when I was in Istanbul in the in mid-90s, was looking at crime. I was looking at violent crime in Istanbul. So I was working in the Mufti Look, so the, the, the office of the Mufti in Istanbul, uh, right in the shadow of the Sulaymaniyah Mosque. In those days, you would go there when they were open. They weren't always open. And you'd be welcomed in. They were, they were incredibly uh, generous and friendly people. And um, they'd, hand, they'd ask you what you wanted to read, and they would hand you the actual 17th century um, register. We didn't wear gloves. And, sh- and several times during the day, they would bring hot tea for us to drink. As we were pouring over these historical documents, I was always very nervous. As you know, in Turkey, the tea is served piping hot. 
It's also served overflowing. I was always nervous I would spill on these precious documents. But over the course of two and a half years, I never did, fortunately. But for those two and a half years that I was in that archive, the director of the archive and, and other Muslims who work there were constantly trying to get me to convert to Islam. So for two and a half years, um, they tried different means of persuasion. And this was while I was reading about 17th century converts. And this is why it also helped me think about why we could understand more the point of view of the people converting people to their religion than the people actually changing religion. Because I was looking at these Islamic law court records. And in those days, you could look at, like I said, you look at the actual record and there would be gold dust sprinkled on those pages where a church property was bought by Muslims or there'd be gold dust sprinkled where there was a convert or they'd switch to red pen to highlight the fact that this was a good thing. So you see ideology, you see normative views seeping through these mundane archival sources. So that's part of the reason why I began to think about the motivation of the converters, not the converts. But something else happened when I was in Istanbul doing this research. After a long day in Sulaimani, I was I went I was living in Jihangir at the time, uh, and I was walking home through Beolo, and of course um, I was hungry. I stopped in a sandwich shop, um, one of those shops where you you have a little table and you stand. Put my computer, my laptop. In those days, they were a little bigger and bulkier, at my feet, and you know what's going to happen next, of course. So some people came into the shop, and they, they were foreign. They spoke to me in English in, a, in, a, in an accent, and they asked me a bunch of questions to distract me. Before I knew it, they ran out the door with my bag. So I ran into the, the main street of Beolo, um, Istiklal Jadesi, and I, they split into two groups. One went left, one went right. So I followed one group to the right towards Taksim Square, and, and I was chasing them. I didn't know if they had the bag, which group had the bag, and I stopped a policeman. And I said, uh, they, they just got away. They grabbed my, my computer. We can catch them if we run. And he said, wow, you're a foreigner, but you speak Turkish. I said, wait, 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 no, they're running. They're running. Come, let's have a cup of tea. I said, no, I don't want tea. I want to, I want to catch those. He said, okay, here, I'll take you to another policeman. So he took me to a, another policeman. And he said, look, this guy, he's a foreigner, but he speaks Turkish. So I said, okay, look, this is not going anywhere. And then, and then they said, oh, by the way, we're, we're traffic police. We, we, can't, we can't arrest criminals anyway. So I said, okay, this was very foolish of me. What can I do now? They said, well, go to the police station and file a report. So I went to a police station. And I sat across the desk from a Turkish officer, police officer, and I narrated in Turkish what had happened to me. And after he finished record, you know, writing it down, he gave me a copy. And I looked at the copy. And I realized something. I realized a lot of things. I realized, first of all, that these weren't my words. These were, this was not the vocabulary I had used. It was also not the grammar I had used. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything that I had said. He had, he had translated everything that I had said into official police speak on how to report a crime. So that's the first thing I noticed. The second thing was the content of what he recorded. I had... I had not described the perpetrators other than to say that they were they were foreigners. I mean, they were foreigners. They were not Turks. And that's all I said. 
he, the police officer, translated that into gypsy. Today we say Roma or Sinti, but the word in Turkish Chingene. He wrote in the police report that I had said that a, that a group of, of gypsies had stolen my computer. I had never said that. So what's going to happen 200 years from now? Someone's going to be investigating crime in Beolo in the 1990s, and they're going to tabulate how many Roma were uh, criminals, right? You, you see where I'm going with this. Um, I, it really made me think again about the, the reliability of the sources I was using. Again, it made me think more about that police officer and how he framed what I said than what I said. That's why, whereas my dissertation was largely based on archival sources, looking at conversion and the post-conversion lives in 17th century Istanbul and southeast um, Rumelia, southeastern Europe, in the book that came out seven years later, I used, I went back to Istanbul and focused mostly on chronicles and other literary accounts to try to understand the people who were recording these records, the people who were bringing other people to their understanding of Islam. So instead of looking at the police reports, you were thinking about what is the policeman thinking when he's writing these reports? Or, or what, 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 what is it that he has to write? What, is it, what are the limitations that, he's, that he has to write? So in the 17th century, someone, a, a, a someone writing down um, a court case, there are things they cannot say. There are things they cannot write. They use euphemisms for certain crimes. They can't st- state explicitly certain, certain sexual crimes, for example. They can only use euphemisms. But also, when it comes to conversion, they have to say that this person voluntarily became a Muslim. They, can't, they cannot record that this person became a Muslim for reasons that are not valid by, by um, secular or Islamic law. So we, so, so, so we can't just take them as you know, the, the reasons why these people converted, but we could understand the, the mental framework in which conversion is imagined and is being recorded as having occurred. Can you tell us more about how you consider conversion in your scholarship? What was the role of conversion in legitimating the state? Well, there's different kinds of conversion that I look at when I look at religious conversion. Usually when we think of religious conversion, we think of a person going from one religion to another. Let's say uh, a Christian becoming a Muslim or a Muslim becoming Christian. And that's certainly one thing that I do look at. But I also look at when pe- another thing of another way to understand conversion is when people go from one level of religiosity to another within their own religion. So in my first book, Honored by the Glory of Islam, most of the book is actually about Muslims turning to a new understanding of Islam that was modern, that was fundamentalist, that was uh, an Islam that sought to recapture the spiritual drive of Muhammad and the first Muslim community, the first believers in the 7th century. So they, they thought that in order to capture that, they would have to get rid of a number of practices that had accumulated over the centuries. So it was actually a, um, a very modern movement of internalization, interiorization, looking at what Muslims believed and then changing it. So actually much of my first book is about the Muslims who wanted to become better Muslims. And in so doing, they 
compelled other Muslims to join along with them, sometimes by force, sometimes through preaching and persuasion. And along with that, they also tried to bring Christians and Jews to their new understanding of Islam. So I also look in my first book at the conversion of Christians and Jews to Islam. Then along with changing religion from one religion to another, or becoming more pious in your own religion, another form of conversion I look at in my first book is the conversion of, of places, the conversion of space, the conversion of churches or buildings that had once been churches becoming mosques, synagogues into mosques, neighborhoods that had been Jewish, converting them into Muslim space. So conversion is also what happens to the landscape, what happens to a city when either a, a religious community grows and needs more prayer space and so on, or in the cases in the 17th century I looked at, there's natural disaster, in this case fire, and following the fire, a program to build imperial mosques in Eminenu and in Galata, which um, had accompanied also this, this turn to a more fundamentalist Islam. How do you consider this um, relationship of the sort of Jews to both the Ottoman state and also society? Well, I, my first book ends with conversion to Islam of Shabbatai Tzvi's followers in Salonika. And then my second book, the book on the Dönmeh, begins where the, the first book ends, with the conversion of Shabbatai Tzvi. And then I follow the three-century history of these former Jews who established, in my view which goes against much of scholarship, a new religion, a, a, a new religion that brought together Islamic Sufism, aspects of Islamic Sufism and aspects of Jewish Kabbalah. Previously, scholars and non-scholars had written about the followers of Shabbatai Tzvi who converted to Islam as secret Jews, simply as secret Jews, as they were externally Muslim legally, but really they were just Jews. Well, if they were Jews, they were very strange Jews. They were Jews that other Jews didn't accept as Jews. They also didn't consider themselves Jews. They were Muslims. But what they were externally and internally was different. So externally, they, they lived as Muslims, but internally we know through their um, looking at their material and also through oral histories I, I conducted, we know that they, they, they created and maintained a religion. A religion that one, it's not a universal religion, it's not a religion that one can join, but it's a, a separate ethno-religious community, departing, again, from, from Jews in, in, in very fundamental ways. In the first part of this episode, we heard about Mark's research on conversion and his first and second books, where he came to the story of Shabbatai Tzvi and his followers. I asked Mark what was specific to the figure of Shabbatai Tzvi in the 17th century, 
for his movement to make a mark on history. The most important book about Shabbatai Tzvi was the book written by Gershom Sholem. It was it came out in Hebrew in 1957 and then uh, uh, expanded English version in 1973. That was really the, you know, that was the main, main understanding we had of Shabbatai Tzvi. And what's, what I noticed and I wrote about that, I wrote about this already in my dissertation in 2001, I pointed this out that even though the messianic movement occurred in the Ottoman Empire, Sholem never made note of that, or maybe never never paid attention to that, or never thought there was any connection whatsoever. And I actually had um, thought that, well, this is funny. This is funny. Why is surely this is a this is a movement which is isn't timeless? It certainly is a movement which has a specific historical character. Shabtai Svi may very well have built on Kabbalistic thoughts that went back to the expulsion from Spain, perhaps. Perhaps the messianic thought went, was even not connected to the expulsion from Spain of Jews in 1492. Perhaps he was looking at even, he was engaged with even earlier currents of messianic and Kabbalistic thought. But whatever, whatever the, his, his, his theology, he, he lived, he was from Izmir. Right? He was from this booming new frontier city that had, had split off away from the grasp of, of Istanbul. It was a city on the frontier, really, that was illegally, rather than sending all of the goods and merchandise to Istanbul to feed that, that giant mouth of Istanbul and the administration, the elite, the dynasty, instead... They were selling goods to Europeans, um, European merchants. They're engaged in kind of a crazy uh, new capitalism. There also were figures in Izmir that were Christian millenn- millenarians who were looking for the Messiah and looking for the sign of the end times. So, so he, so he grew up in in Izmir. So he's very much in Izmir, and Izmir is a city with a long history of messianic activity. In legend, if not in reality, of course, Mary is supposed to be uh, isn't Mary buried in what is called Selçuk today? So it has a long Christian association that region and of the western coast there, but also it has a long history of Muslim radical thought. Sheikh Bedreddin, his rebellion in 1416, two of his disciples, one a Christian convert, one a Jewish convert, had emerged in that region as well. So, so this was already a region where you had Christian, Muslim, and Jewish think people thinking about radical different approaches to God and even rebellion against the current social political order. So he's born into this milieu, and then the question is, all right, well, why did people join him then? In, in, in Jewish history, you constantly have messianic figures. You have a constant stream of people the most famous is Jesus, of course. But you have you constantly have Jews who say that they're the Messiah, and they might get a small following, but they're usually executed. They're usually killed by political authorities. But this movement was the biggest. This movement drew in Jews from Hamburg and Germany all the way to, to Yemen, we think. So in the 17th century, this idea that the Jewish Messiah had arrived was something that was extremely popular among Jews. And also there were some Muslims and Christians who also believed that Shabbat Tzvi was, the, was actually the Messiah. 
or the Mahdi for Muslims. Why was it? Um, is it particular about sort of the ideas that Shabbat Isawi uh, came up with, or is it the moment that there's something specific happening in 17th century at this time? Well, both. So if you also see, there's a Kurdish messianic figure at the same time. There's a, a Kurdish boy messiah in Diyarbakir, um, also in the 1660s in the Ottoman Empire. So Muslims also are looking for um, the end of days, but it's also what. Shabda Svi was preaching, and he gained an incredible following among women. So again, we have to always think about gender and sexuality. Shabda Svi believed that women could also read from the Torah, could also participate in the Saturday morning prayer service in the synagogue. This was, this was unheard of. And he actually called women to Izmir's Portuguese synagogue to come up and to read from the Torah. So, so he had a massive following among women. He had a massive number of women and girls who appeared as prophetesses almost, who, who, um, who went from city to city proclaiming that the Messiah was here. Shabtai Sevi promised them, promised women, a revolution. He promised equality between men and women in the religious sphere. He also removed all the, the sexual prohibitions that Judaism imposed on married couples. He promised, he made all kinds of uh, impossible promises, but he specifically preached to women. And this is, this was part of, part of the following uh, as well. He, he offered women aspects of life that, that no other religion would offer them to. This is also why the rabbis, most rabbis were so opposed to him, because he allowed that which wasn't supposed to be allowed. How did the Ottoman state react to this? Because you said most Messianic, Jewish Messianic figures get executed. What happened to Shabbat Sevi? It looks like probably Jewish figures told the court that this, was, this person was um, saying all kinds of blasphemous things. So, so he was brought to Adirne. He was brought before the, the council of the sultan. And we have one account, a contemporary Ottoman account. I was the first to translate it into English. It had been translated very poorly into French in the 1930s. But uh, looking at the original account uh, written by the Sultan, the Sultan's chronicler, he was asked about what he had said, and he, apparently he denied everything, and then he happily became a convert to Islam. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But then there's all the, all the, the Jewish sources and what they say, and then there's even Shabbat Tzvi's own letters and what he says about why he converted. But the Ottomans began to see him as a problem, and the, the solution was not executing him, though, which is surprising. The solution was to make him into a Muslim and then have him near the sultan. So, again, we have to look at the view of Islam of Mehmed IV and his court. These were Muslims who were opposed to charismatic religious figures. They're opposed to ecstatic religion. They're opposed to messianism and ecstatic Sufi practices everything that Shabtai Tzvi was. Shabtai Tzvi was all of these things. He was like a, a deviant dervish. He was like an ecstatic Sufi with all these miracles supposedly attached to him. So exactly the opposite kind of religion that Mehmed IV wanted Muslims and people around him to, to believe in. So the best solution, the best outcome for the court was actually to make him into a proper Muslim, not to execute him, but to 
but to dress him in Muslim clothing, to give him a Muslim name, and have him serve the Sultan as um, well, yeah, as a, as a in, in some palace um, position. The strange thing is that hundreds of Jews also converted to Islam. They followed him into Islam. And that's, that's why Shabbat Tzvi is not just a dead end in Jewish history or in Ottoman history. Because normally, like I said, normally a messianic figure is executed. Shabbat Tzvi wasn't killed. He was sent into exile into a remote part of the empire where he, where he passed away. But his followers coalesced in Salonika. And rather than forgetting about this or, or saying, you know, okay, well, he converted, the thing is, the, the movement is over, they converted too, and then they were insistent on perpetuating his, the beliefs and rituals that he had taught them. They believed that Shabbat Tzvi was the Messiah. They believed the Messiah had come in the form of Shabbat Tzvi, and then Shabbat Tzvi had been reborn in different people who lived after him. The followers of Shabbatai Tzvi have been called the Dönmeh. I asked Mark, where did this term come from? The term Dönmeh is a, a term others called them. They never called themselves Dönmeh or Dönmeler. In the beginning, they called themselves the Ma'minim, which is the same as the Arabic Mu'minin, same as uh, Hebrew Ma'minim. The Hebrew means believers. They called themselves the believers. Um, that was one of the terms for themselves. This term, dönme, is obviously a Turkish term. Also, sometimes you see the Arabic, uh, well, an Ottomanization of the Arabic um, avdeti, the one who turns, the one who returns. Dönme, obviously the people who turn. Um, this is the external attribution. Some people call them sabataija, but it's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a new term. It's not a term that is, it really has much historical resonance. To call them sabbateums doesn't really make much sense. People are, I guess people who use that term are trying to be polite. They, because the term dönme is, of course, used as a pejorative in Turkey. It means the secret Jew. It, it means the, the, the Jew within who's trying to overthrow the proper order. So from 1908 to the present, um, conservative Muslims have attacked the regime in power as and its leaders as being Dönme. So from the 20s and especially since the 50s, after there was more freedom of, of speech in Turkey, right-wing, fascist, and um, conservative Muslims, these are different groups, called Ataturk a Dönme. They said Ataturk was from this group. By that they meant that he was only a Jew could actually revolutionize Turkey like this. No Muslim would ever call for such changes. But, but what we see in ever since 2000, the early 2000s, when the current regime took over, since the early 2000s, then secular, secularists have called Islamists dönme. Secularists, so-called left-wing, people described, call themselves left-wing, have called Erdogan a, a secret Jew. Now, this is, this is of course, pretty pre preposterous. But the point of this is that this is an old, over 100-year-old Turkish trope of anti-Semitism. So they've adopted a modern racial understanding of anti-Semitism, which is that once a Jew, always a Jew. Jews uh, have a biological essence that is evil. Jews never change. They're always a problem for the majority society. So they've adopted this Christian European concept of the Jew, but then given it a Turkish twist by 
ascribing it to the Dernme. So whether you're a secularist or a religious conservative in, in Turkey for the past century, you can say that the other side is full of secret Jews as a way to delegitimize that government or that group. Of course, Turkey witnessed a coup five years ago, and the day after the coup, in one of in one of the Islamist dailies in Istanbul, uh, one of the Islamist dailies in Turkey, there was a political cartoon that showed Fethullah Gülen as a Jew who was actually behind the coup, but he was a secret Jew behind the coup. In fact, in in the mid twenties, two thousand tens the uh, Islamic press began to say that Gulen was a, was a Dönme, was a secret Jew. So it doesn't matter that he's actually from Erzurum and he's a, he's a Turkish conservative preacher. To undermine him, to delegitimize him, even Turkish government ministers have said he's a secret Jew. So how do the Jews themselves uh, remember the Dönme? And how does this fit within sort of that historical memory that you discuss in that 500 years of Jewish history with the Ottoman state? Well, of course, Jews don't really want much to do with the Dönme because, again, these people were embarrassing to Jews. These people were had converted out of Judaism centuries ago. They had performed all kinds of uh, embarrassing rituals in public. They had um, mocked uh, Jewish law. They also were very much disliked in Turkey. So it's hard to get leaders of the Turkish Jewish community to talk about Shabbat Tzvi or to talk about the Dönme. At the, at the Jewish Museum in Istanbul, Turkish Jewish Museum, there is a plaque, there is a panel on the wall that explains to the visitors, we Jews have nothing to do with Shabbat Tzvi or, or, or his followers. We are, they are not Jews. We are, not, you know, we are. So it's, you know, definitely wanting to disassociate themselves from that history because of what he means for, for Jews who didn't follow him um, because he was a, a, a rebel and he went against, as I mentioned, Jewish law, but also because of all of the conspiracy theories popular in Turkey about the Dönme. So obviously the Turkish Jewish community doesn't want itself to be associated with them. And again, um, let me repeat, they, the Dönme were not Jews. They were Jews in the sense that their ancestors had been Jewish, who had converted to Islam, but they weren't Jews in the sense that they were practicing Judaism and recognized as Jews. Now, the, the, the problem is, is that today, Portugal and Spain allow Sephardic Jews, Jews whose ancestors were expelled from Spain and Portugal in the medieval period, to return to Spain or Portugal and after filling out uh, a number of forms and perhaps taking a language test or what have you, are, are given citizenship. So many Dönme, whose families do descend way back when from Spanish and Portuguese Jews, also want to claim citizenship, you know, also want to obtain citizenship in Portugal or in Spain. They want to do so because of the place of Jews in Turkey today is not a good one. Jews are not safe in Turkey. Jews have been targets of 
assassinations, kidnappings, uh, multiple synagogue bombings, the amount of anti-Jewish racism in um, the press is um, is astonishing. So the Dernmer want, you know, they, they also want to benefit from these. But the problem for them is, of course, their families became Muslim three centuries ago. And the problem is, how can they trace their Spanish-Jewish heritage when three centuries ago their families adopted Muslim names and have been living as Muslims ostensibly for three centuries. So, so if if those Dunma families have maintained genealogies, then perhaps it's possible. But they also need to have the chief rabbi of Turkey, I believe, um, declare that they're Spanish Jews, which which um, which it puts the the um, the chief rabbi in a difficult position because the chief rabbi doesn't want to be seen as converting Muslims to Jews, which is completely legal in Turkey. Uh, any citizen of Turkey can change religion. It's not illegal. But, of course, they don't want to draw any attention to themselves. So how does this actually uh, pair with what you talk about in Sultanic Saviors? Well, in, in Sultanic Saviors and Tolerant Turks, I, I look at history, I look at historical memory, and I look at the politics of history writing, in the way that Jews have written about the Ottomans and the Turks for the past 500 years. And one of the things I argue in the book is that when it comes to the past century, the denial of the Armenian genocide by Turkish Jews and their historians outside of Turkey goes hand in hand with the denial that there's anti-Jewish racism in Turkey as well. We will discuss Sultanic Saviors, Marx's newest book, in detail in the next episode. Throughout this episode, we discuss Marx's scholarship from the beginning to now. The final question I asked Marx is what is he planning to do next? Well, I've, I've just finished another book, and um, this book will come out this autumn, so this September or October, and it's a non-academic book, so it's, it's a trade book. So it is a book that you'll see in bookstores, unlike academic books. It'll be treated as a textbook, but it's not written as a textbook. It's a history of the Ottoman dynasty. That's what I was commissioned to write. It's a history of the Ottoman dynasty from, from Osman to Mehmed VI. And so it, it covers over six centuries of history. And it's going to be titled The Ottomans, Khans, Caesars, and Caliphs. And um, it'll be published in the U.S. and the U.K. simultaneously. What I try to do in, the, in this forthcoming book is to, is to tell stories in a frank way, in an honest way, without you know, worrying about what taboos are, incorporating gender, incorporating sexuality, incorporating all the, the ups and downs of the dynasty and the empire, focusing also on these moments of terror for the dynasty when there were these assassination attempts or where the, where the, there were these dervish uprisings. I have a whole chapter on Shabbatai Tzvi. So it's, it's, it's going to be in some ways familiar to scholars. Um, in some ways it's going to be very surprising to scholars because a lot of the book is based on just narrating exactly what the Ottomans said about themselves. And this, again, much of what I have to say 
based on the Ottoman worldview is not the way the Ottomans are remembered or taught today. So, um, so that will be coming out um, this autumn, and I'm excited to see how it is received. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. You can find more information, including a bibliography, on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook, where the community of the listeners is over 35,000 strong. That's it for this episode. Until next time, take care.